Good morning. Man, I have been looking forward to this. It feels so good to be here with you in person. I'd like to welcome everyone who's here with us in the building this morning. And I'd love to send my greetings to everyone who's at home worshiping online. I've missed you, and I love you all. My sermon this morning will be a continuation in a series about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And I've titled this sermon, You Are Sons, If. And my prayer is that God will allow my words to bring fame to his Holy Spirit. And that the Spirit of God will bring clarity and understanding as his word is preached this morning. And I pray that together we will all be built up in the faith. So please stand with me now. And listen as I read from Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 6 and 7. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but God's child, and since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. You may be seated. So right away, I think we need to stop and take notice of three surprising words that we read in verse 6. Again, verse 6 says, Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out Abba, Father. And the three surprising words that I'd like to draw our attention to this morning are the words, You are sons. What an astonishing thing this is. The reason that I think we need to stop here is because I think we need to just take a moment and get our bearings. We need to gain some perspective on what it is we're hearing right now. Because I think that the truth found in these three words is meant to set our hearts on fire with thanksgiving. I think this is a truth that's meant to set our thoughts on the goodness of God. I believe this is meant to sustain us right here in the present and cause our hearts to overflow with hopeful anticipation for the future. In these three words, God is communicating a glorious reality in very simple language that we can all understand. And that's the language of adoption. 
that God is our Father and that he has done an extraordinary thing to obtain the legal right to bring us into his household as his children. But what is it exactly that makes these three words so surprising? Well, as you know, through Scripture, God is telling a story. And as a Christian, you know where you fit into the story. And you also know that you used to live under forced slavery. At least I hope that's not news to you. But even if you came to the faith in your childhood, certainly by now you've experienced that your sin nature is constantly at war with the Spirit of God. And maybe by now you even recognize that there are spiritual forces at work in this world, demonic influences. And these demonic influences stand between man and God. Now in this passage of Galatians, Paul is actually arguing that the very idea behind legalism, which is the idea that God will accept good works as the basis of our salvation, he's arguing that that idea itself is a demonic idea. In verse 3, Paul says that we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Now, these spiritual forces or demonic influences, which Paul is talking about, they try to enslave us into thinking and living in ways that are contrary to the Spirit of God. So, Scripture is telling a story about how we were all slaves and how our slave master's name was sin. And sin always forces his slaves to go on a long journey to a hopeless place called death. And every time that sin is able to drive another slave into death. He laughs as he eavesdrops on the funeral and hears one slave say something terribly naive to another slave, like rest in peace. Because sin knows that in death, there is no rest, and there's sure as hell no peace. So when God speaks the words, you are sons, we take that to mean that we are no longer slaves to sin. We've been given a new identity. God is saying that sin is no longer our master. God wants you to know that you have not only been set free from sin, you've not only been redeemed, but he has done something even better. He's adopted you 
as his own child. Not only did he pay the ransom to free you as a prisoner of sin, but when he saw that you were naked and hungry and without a home, he said, come into my house and eat at my table. Here's clothing for you to wear and a room for you to sleep in. All that is mine is yours. So according to God's word, your new identity is that you are a child of God. You're no longer a slave, but God's child. It's who you are if. I'd like to tell you a short story about a friend of mine who identifies as a Christian. He grew up here in West Michigan, and his parents bought him an expensive education at a private Christian school. And he went on to a local Christian college. If there were such a thing, he has the pedigree of a Christian. He and his family attend weekly worship services. He's kind, he's generous, he's sincere. He's unwilling to compromise his ethics and business. And he has prospered in his marriage, in his finances, and in his friendships. He's in good standing, and people think highly of him. But this is a story that I've learned to become, we'll say, lovingly suspicious of. So one day a few years ago, I decided that I would go to him and I would preach the truth of the gospel to him if he was willing. So I called him up. And a few days later, there I was at his office sitting across his desk from him. And I asked him a question. I said, what is a Christian? And he answered me. I suppose you probably would like to know what he said. Well, instead of telling you what he said, I'm going to tell you what I said after I heard his answer. I looked him in the eyes and I graciously told him that it would be better for him and for his family if he stopped considering himself to be a Christian. And you know what? I'm also interested in asking you the same question. What is a Christian? Because I wonder if your background might have been similar to his background. And if it is, then I wonder if your answer might have been similar to his answer. You know, when I asked the question, 
what is a Christian? What I'm doing here is I'm actually rephrasing the same question that our text has led us to this morning, which is, what is it that makes you a child of God? For example, are you a Christian if you live your life according to a moral code of conduct? If you're honest and kind and generous? According to the Bible, integrity does not qualify you as a child of God. Now, a mature child of God will have integrity. No mistake about that. But it's just a byproduct of who they already are in Christ. What about if you identify yourself as a Christian? Many will try to stand on Romans chapter 10, verse 9, which says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But in the faith... There's no such thing as magic words. Even if we say them with heartfelt sincerity. Now what about if you have conviction that God exists and that he is the creator and ruler of all things? Does that make you a Christian? Does that make you a child of God? In the book of James, chapter 2, verse 19, we read, So you believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that. Here the Bible teaches us that you're doing well to have conviction that God exists. And it is true that he is the creator and ruler of all things. But don't let your conviction deceive you. Because even the demons believe it, and they are horrified at what he will do to them at the appointed time. So what is it? What is it that makes a Christian? What is it that converts a slave into a son? According to the Bible, You are a child of God if you have faith in Jesus Christ. Or to phrase it as a negative, according to the Bible, you're a slave to sin and to the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms until you have faith in Jesus Christ. In chapter 3 of Galatians, verses 26 and 27, we read, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Faith is the operative word. It explains how it's possible for a slave to become a son. So how is it that you are sons of God? Through faith, that's how. 
How is it that you're able to put on Christ? It's by being baptized into Christ. And I'm not talking about water immersion, which is a symbol of what's already taken place in the heart. Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, that if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. He goes on to say in the very next verse, that if you lose your life for me and for the gospel, you'll save it. That's biblical baptism. Losing your right to self-determine what your life will be about and giving all authority to Jesus for the sake of the gospel, that's what it means to be baptized into Christ. So what is faith? What is this faith that appropriates the love of God onto a person in a way that brings them out of slavery and into God's household? You know, here in West Michigan, I think we need to do a better job of distinguishing between faith and tradition. With regard to salvation, the clearest definition of faith that I know of comes from the author J.I. Packer, who writes that faith is a self-abandoning trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. It's clear that nothing less than abandoning ourselves and trusting in him as our Lord and Savior is required to become his disciple. This is what makes a Christian. One preacher said, a Christian is one who turns away from his sin and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else to save him from sin and the coming judgment. I think the question, what is a Christian, can be answered in many ways, but one thing is for sure, that when you have genuine faith, you will have God as your Father. You are sons if you have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, when I read the New Testament, it strikes me how Paul is always working to pull believers into a new way of understanding things. He's trying to pry us away from the ideas that seemed good to us while we were still living under the control of our sinful nature and of these spiritual forces of evil. And he's introducing us to the truth about who we are and how we should be thinking and behaving as people who have faith in Jesus Christ. 
So he writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 saying, if anyone is in Christ, that is, if anyone has faith in Jesus Christ, he's a new creation. Again, he's trying to pastor these new disciples of Jesus into a new way of understanding who God says they are as people who have faith in his son. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he writes, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Again, he's introducing new ideas about who we are in Christ and how we should be thinking and behaving as people who have faith in God. And now here in this letter to the churches in Galatia, we read in chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, we were in slavery. That's past tense. We were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption to sonship. Paul is re-preaching the gospel to the churches in Galatia. He's reminding them of who they were and what God did and who they are now. So if we keep reading verse 6, it says, Because you are sons, God. I want to pause right here. Because this is the part where we should all be sitting on the edge of our seat. Can you even imagine what's going to come next? <laughs> because you are sons, God, we're about to find out what God has in mind to do for those who he has redeemed out of slavery and adopted as his own children. What's the very first thing God is going to do for his newly adopted kids? He's already sent his son to die for our sins. He's already given us the gift of salvation by grace alone. And he did that while we were still at war with him. What will he do now that we're in the family? What good gift will he give to us according to Ephesians 2? Who were once far away, but have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. The scripture says, because you are sons. God sent the spirit of his son 
into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. God sent the spirit into our hearts. So, you are sons. If you have faith in Jesus Christ. And when you have faith in Jesus, the first thing God does is forgive your sins and welcome you into the family by showering you with a gift of greater value than anything you could ever thought to ask for. Think about this. The father's first order of business is to give his newly adopted child his Holy Spirit. And the Spirit's first order of business is to cause a newly adopted child to call out to his father. This is a picture of family intimacy. There's a parent-child relationship that's being formed, and the Holy Spirit is at the center of it. Without the Holy Spirit, there can be no relationship with God. And now we come to the high point of verse 6, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because as magnificent as it is that God has redeemed us out of slavery, it is utterly astonishing that he has sent his spirit into our hearts. The main ministry of the Holy Spirit is to confer upon our conscience that God is our Father. He sows this new reality into the mind of a believer. This is the highest blessing of the gospel. To be forgiven and accepted by God. To be declared righteous in his sight. Now that's the most fundamental blessing of the gospel. That's justification. But to be adopted as a child and brought into the household of God and to be given the gift of his Holy Spirit, there is no higher blessing than this. So let's go ahead and explore the gift of the Holy Spirit in light of the adoption that we've received. Again, verse 6 says, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. What is this? Abba, Father. Well, first, I think it's extraordinary that this is what the Spirit cries out from the heart of a believer. The Spirit doesn't cry out, glory to God. Or blessed be the name of the Lord. Even though these are both inward promptings that the Spirit will compel from within us. But the Spirit is given to us as the Spirit 
of adoption. He instills the parent-child relationship that we have with God in Christ. The Holy Spirit grants us the experience of knowing God with an intimacy that was otherwise unavailable to us. And he draws us into a closeness with our Heavenly Father that allows us to approach God with a boldness and trust that's only possible from a child who's secure in his Father's love. One of my favorite things right now happens when our family has been out someplace. And I'm pulling the car back into the garage. And I'll stop the car and turn it off, and my, my two older sons, Canaan and Jude, will unclip themselves and get out. But my two-year-old obviously can't get out of his car seat. So before I can even get myself out of the car, he starts shouting at me. He says, Daddy, get me out. <laughs> and I'll look at him as if to say, what did you say to me? He'd be like, get me out, Daddy. And it always makes me smile because when I look at him, he's just grinning from ear to ear. I think that is a decent picture of the attitude that Abba Father describes. Because Jacob, my two-year-old, knows and adores me as his daddy. And because he's secure in my love, he puts forward his request with boldness and urgency, I might add. I hope my kids are always willing to speak with me with this kind of respectful audacity. And I think God wants the same from us. Philippians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 says, The Lord is near. Oh, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. You are sons if you have the Spirit of God in your heart, the Spirit who causes you to cry out, Abba, Father. So this leads me to probably the most basic observation of verse 6 which is that the Holy Spirit makes us call out to God. The scripture says, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So the work of the Holy Spirit is not only to make us conscious of our adoption, but also to prompt us to pray. And this isn't a one-time thing either. 
This is all day, every day. But the focus here this morning isn't on how to pray, but the fact that the Spirit will prompt the believer to pray. Again, the father's first order of business is to give his newly adopted child his Holy Spirit. And the Spirit's first act in us is to cause us to acknowledge that we belong to the Father. Now, this leaves us with one more area to discuss. And it is a special gift of God through the Holy Spirit. And that is the gift of assurance. So what do I mean by the gift of assurance? What I mean is the peace of mind that comes with knowing that you belong to God in Christ. So from verse 6, we know that the Holy Spirit is given to us as the spirit of adoption. And the Holy Spirit causes us to go to God in prayer as a child goes to his father. And while verse 7 doesn't use the word assurance, I think it's pretty clearly implied. Verse 7 says, so you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. So Paul's path of reasoning goes like this. You were a slave, but God sent his son into the world to buy you out of slavery, costing him his own life, which is what it took to overcome sin and death. Then God adopted you as a child if you have faith in his son. Then God sent the spirit of his son into your heart. And because you are sons, you can expect to receive an inheritance one day. So the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is meant to also give you the assurance that you will receive a future inheritance. But there's actually another reason that I'd like to gather for a moment around this gift of assurance. I want to point to something that someone listening is already thinking. I want to circle back to that question that I asked my friend. What is a Christian? Because a thoughtful person listening to this right now might be asking themselves, what if I don't know God as my father? What if I haven't experienced the Holy Spirit prompting me to pray? What are you saying? Are you saying that I'm not a Christian? Are you saying that I don't belong to Christ? Here's what I'm saying. It would be sinful for me 
to stand up here and give you false assurance. It would be unfaithful for me to pacify your doubts. So I won't do that. Instead, I'd like to give you three simple thoughts to consider. Number one is actually meant to draw attention to your lack of assurance. It's from Romans chapter 8, which famously begins with, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it famously ends with, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. But sandwiched in between these glorious promises. We read this statement in verse 9 of chapter 8 of Romans. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So if you struggle with assurance, I want to affirm that you ought to take this very seriously because the promises of God are only given to the children of God and the children of God will have the spirit of God living in them. Number two is that it's possible that you remain unassured of your salvation because your faith has not been tested. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, we read, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come, that is, these trials have come, so that... The proven genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So if you're unsure, I encourage you, ask God to test your faith. We read in Deuteronomy that God led his people in the wilderness for 40 years to humble and to test them. Christians must learn to embrace trials because trials are the proving ground of your faith. And number three, and this is the last thing I'll share with you before I close. I'd like you to listen to the words of Jesus from Luke chapter 11, where he's teaching on prayer. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him.
So if you lack the assurance of your salvation, I encourage you right now to get alone with God. Go to him in prayer and praise him for his mercy. Praise him for his love. Thank him for the gift of salvation. Thank him for not sparing his own son so that you can be spared. Ask him to forgive your sin. Ask him to rescue you from slavery. Ask him to adopt you as his child. Ask him to cause his Holy Spirit to make you call out to him as Father. Ask him to fill you with his joy and peace. Ask him to kindle a fire in your heart for the Bible. And ask him for the power to live out your faith day by day. You are sons if. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege of knowing you as my father. I thank you for the honor of preaching your word to your people. Lord, I've done what you've asked me to do. And now I ask that your word would go out and land on the hearts of all who belong to you and all who don't know you yet, who will hear this truth. And I ask that many would return to you and that many will turn to you. I ask that your Holy Spirit would faithfully minister and that your word would not return to you void. We love you.